If you have your Bibles, you want to turn there. We'll be taking some scripture out of the uh, Gospel according to John, chapter 10. And uh, we'll be starting at about verse 1. In this particular chapter, this is yet another chapter in the Gospel according to John that I could probably spend the rest of whatever time God has allotted me preaching out of, and it it wouldn't be a waste. Uh, in, in you know in any of these chapters and, and you know cause all of it as I've said many times about the gospel according to John I think part of the reason it's uh, so special to me and it wasn't the first one that I really read comprehensively and understood uh, the larger portion of uh, but it was one that became dear to me when I began to preach and uh, of course later on I would discover you know that John wrote this book so that people would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and He's the Messiah. And, of course, what he records here, uh, the title for this chapter in my Bible, is uh, Jesus, the Good Shepherd. And uh, I think that's really important for us to remember. And years ago, I don't really remember having said it, but uh, I was told about it after the fact, uh, many years after the fact. Mom, when she was younger, and I was just a small child and of course I'd been going to church since I could remember and she said she was kind of downcast and kind of grumbling and complaining about the state of things in her life that particular time and said I was sitting on the couch uh, watching tv you know while she was going about the house trying to straighten things up and you know do the things of a homemaker and my two older brothers were in school and she said she was kind of muttering and grumbling to herself and said that just out of the blue, this little boy that she had sitting there said, Mommy, is the Lord your shepherd? And uh, she said that kind of shocked her out of being so ungrateful and unhappy at the time, you know, and brought her back to that. Of course, as I said, I don't, I don't remember doing that, but I remember hearing about it and everything, and, and, and kids can do that. God will use them. And, uh, you know, acknowledging and keeping our focus on the fact that the Lord is our shepherd keeps us in the right perspective and in the right frame of mind. Because we're not just, it's not just suggested, but required that we depend upon the Lord as our shepherd. And all of the things that come along with it, you know, that in our day-to-day lives and everything, we feel responsible, especially when we attain to adulthood and we learn things and get experience and everything. It's real easy to begin to discount counting on the Lord. And I, for one, know that I've been that way at times in my life. But there's never a point, you know, that as a parent, I want my children to be less dependent on me as time goes along. That way, whenever they have to be without me, they'll be able to continue on. But with our relationship with the Lord, it's less like that. It's, it's more that as you go along, you should become more and more dependent upon Him because you're more and more willing to trust. You've exercised your ability to trust in the Lord. And Jesus, when He's talking to these people, it's not exactly uh, you know, a friendly crowd that He's talking to here. He's not just talking to the ones that follow Him and devoted to Him, but rather He's talking to some that are looking for an occasion to take Him and kill Him. And yet he still talks about being the good shepherd. And we'll start reading at verse 1 in John chapter 10. It says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief 
and a robber. Verse 2, but he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Verse 3, to him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Right there, you could take uh, and, and preach probably ten different sermons on just those first four verses. But the thing that Jesus is telling is he's looking, he's saying, look, if somebody tries to come in and claim that they're the Messiah, claim that they're the man of God, uh, uh, that if they come in some other way other than by the door, if they come in some other way other than the way that God has set out, then they're a thief and a robber. They're trying to usurp something because Jesus came down into this world uh, not because he was forced to but because he chose to and he come down to these lost sheep the uh, prophet Isaiah one of the things that he says he says all we are like sheep and have gone astray we turned everyone to our own way uh, uh, and Jesus come down into this world to call them back uh, and the shepherd whenever he would come to the sheep uh, uh, if there was one that was uh, uh, unruly and disobedient uh, he would take them and break them uh, in order to keep them with the fold that they may learn to trust on him uh, and I tell you sometimes people encounter that now days. That's not the best way to go, but it's better than dying and going to hell. Because a lot of people would look around and say, I've got my own way. I've found my own way. And Jesus is saying that He is the only way. He's the one who is authorized to bring them in or to shut them out. That He's the only one who has that authority. And all the time they look around and they say, well, you think that uh, you're something great because of the things that you do. Uh, and later on in this same chapter, he tells them, uh, uh, believe in me uh, for the very work's sake, for the things that I've done, not just because of what I've said. That he tells them very plainly uh, uh, that they'll know his voice. He'll call them by name. Uh, that makes me think of when the Apostle Paul was right there in Thessalonians talking about uh, uh, the end times and how that uh, the Lord would call them out of the ground and those that are alive would be caught up with them. Uh, uh, I believe that I'll hear my name called uh, when the time comes. Uh, uh, that he'll call me out. Uh, just like in the next chapter, in chapter 11, when Jesus uh, calls Lazarus forth and those dead ears are able to hear because the sheep know the shepherd's voice and they listen to it and you'll notice in verse 5 he says and a stranger will they not follow but will flee from him for they know not the voice of strangers and you may say well Brother Jeremiah, isn't it possible to be deceived? Yes, Jesus even refers to that. He talks about that in the end times there would be false prophets and false Christs that would arise and would deceive the very elect if it were possible. But if they know the voice of the Lord, if they hearken to Him, if they know His Word, uh, uh, if they have a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ uh, and the Holy Spirit indwelling in them, uh, then they're not going to be fooled. Uh, it won't be possible. Uh, but the thing is, is a lot of times what happens is we cut off our own line of communication. We quit listening to the shepherd. Or we get out somewhere where, that, uh, where we're distracted by everything else. And I can tell you that one of the big problems uh, in society today, and of course you know I'm a student of history as well, uh, uh, that one of the big problems with any society as it begins to degrade morally is that there's too much idle time. 
Too much time of sitting around. And it's well said that idle hands do the devil's work. You know, a lot of people would say, well, that means you need to be working every moment of every day. Not necessarily, but what it does mean is that they need to be occupied with something other than nothing. And the Roman Empire, right before it fell, its citizens were more concerned about entertaining themselves than anything else. And if that doesn't resemble 21st century United States of America, I don't know what does. People are more concerned with entertaining themselves. When I began to uh, go to Marshall University and work there as a student, I I felt like uh, that I was going to be behind the times as far as technology, that these young people were going to know so much more and going to be head and shoulders beyond me, and I was going to be expected to be able to use technology and produce work and wasn't going to be able to keep up. I found out within the first couple of weeks that not only was I on par with them, but far ahead. Because many of the youth of today aren't very good at producing work with technology. They're only good at entertaining themselves with it. And you think about it, it's no different than the Athenians when Paul encountered them. And he looked at them and, he, and the way that it's written, it says that they were all the time looking for the next new thing, the next interesting thing. And so when Paul got up and began to point to the unknown God who they worshipped, they were like, well, this is interesting. But it never really went much further than that. It was entertaining for a time and then that was it. It's the same as people coming out to the house of the Lord every once in a while to see what the guy talks about, see the stories that he tells and the things that he says, but never really wanting to take anything away from it other than sheer entertainment. And you think about what a problem that is. That there is a phrase that exists in this land called church entertainment. Because it's people going to church to be entertained. Jesus, now He would do some amazing things. Some things that people would marvel at. Don't get me wrong, He did. I imagine it was quite the sight to see when a man would come to Him blind as a bat. Uh, He would touch His eyes and He would go away seeing or unable to walk. And He would carry His own bed away. But Jesus pointed to those things and He told them, He said, that pales by comparison to what's going to happen on Calvary whenever it is that I secure salvation for those who are dead in their trespasses and sin. That at another point He told them, He said, the Son of Man must be lifted up, must be crucified, must be betrayed, must go to the cross and die and shed His blood so that this world could be saved from their sins. Because all the other things that he did would have been pointless had he not done that. And that makes him the good shepherd. That makes him the one that done everything that was necessary. Because the shepherd will give their life. For the sheep will go on in verse 6. It says, This parable, this parable spake he unto them, but they understood not the things they were which he spake to them. Verse 7, Then said Jesus unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 8, all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Verse 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and shall find pasture. Verse 10, the thief come not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life For the sheep, what he's saying is he's saying that everybody else might come and entertain you. Everybody else might come and tell you things that make you feel good. But only one is going to come and save them. I can't save you. All I can do is point to the one who can save you. All I can do is tell you about the good shepherd. 
But it's your choice to receive him as the good shepherd. And not just 20 years ago, not just last week, but every single day. Every time we get up, we have to choose that day who we're going to serve. You know, one of the most hideous things I think we'll ever see in our lives is people pandering to their own flesh and their own wants and desires. Being completely emotional about everything. And I, the, the easiest example I could give of how hideous that is is looking at a two-year-old. A two-year-old is governed sheerly by how they feel and by their emotions. And they're governed by what they want and they want it right now. But then if you look around at most adult human beings in this world, are they really that different? The only difference is they have a little bit of shame about them. They have a little bit of ability to look around and say, well, that's probably not good for me to lay down in the floor of Walmart and start wallowing around and everything, but I will cut a fuss. I will ask to see the manager and I'll yell at them because that things didn't go my way. That's a bit of a problem for people whenever they pander to their own flesh. Uh, the drug addicted, they're pandering to their flesh. Uh, uh, many things that happen in this world, when you're just trying to satisfy the flesh, it'll never be satisfied. It's never going to be happy. You can find the most comfortable position in the most comfortable seat on the face of the planet and you'll last about 10 minutes tops before you'll have to readjust your position. The flesh is never to be pandered to. Now, of course, it has needs. We know that we need to feed ourselves. But the way the Apostle Paul put it is he said, I beat my body and put it under subjection. Not letting it rule me, but rather ruling it. Putting aside the fleshly things. When a person fasts and prays, what they're doing is they're saying, I'm putting aside the flesh and I'm wanting to take up the spiritual. And Jesus, when He's talking to them, He's telling them, look, I'm the shepherd. Nobody gets saved without me. And this world looks around and they're saying, oh, there's this other religion and there's this other thing, this other ability in order to get what it is that I want. And therein is the problem. It's not about what we want. Rather, it's about what we need. Jesus come to satisfy need, not want. He come to save people from their sins he come that we might have life and that we have it more abundantly. I hope that uh, John 10.10 10 is a scripture that many of us at least recognize when we hear it. That He's come to give us life. In another place, James and John, the sons of thunder, as uh, uh, Jesus referred to them at times, they looked around and they were walking through Samaria. And the Samaritans, they didn't want anything to do with Jesus. They were like, no, nah, we don't want none of that. They treated him uh, about as welcome as a rattlesnake. And James and John looked at Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, how about you have us call down fire on them like Elijah did? And Jesus rebuked them. He told them, he said, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. He said, I've not come to destroy men's lives. I've come to save them. You know, when we walk around in condemnation of those that are lost and undone, we're very similar in the spirit as James and John there. Looking around saying, oh, they'll find out when the Lord comes back. I hope they don't. Our mandate is not to condemn them. Because if you turn into the third chapter of this same book, it tells you they were already condemned. They're already dying and going to hell. What they need is to be saved. And there's only one way to be saved, and that's by Jesus Christ. 
Is He your shepherd? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Is the Lord my shepherd? Do I depend upon Him? When I have a need, is He the first one that I turn to? You know, I think the funniest thing nowadays is, is that people think they can trust everything but that. And yet, if, you, if the news is to be believed, the world is in a very sad, difficult state and nothing can be counted upon. And yet, we find ourselves turning to the government, our own bank accounts, and everything else. You think about, though, how easily it is that our financial status could be wiped out. A computer glitch could zero your account out. That's it. You're done. You got no guarantees. You may say, well, what about the FDIC, Brother Jeremiah? Well, I'm telling you, if society as we know it collapses, the FDIC won't mean nothing. You know what will mean something? The ability to grow food and feed yourself and take care of yourself. And a lot of people say, oh, that's just being alarmist, Brother Jeremiah. That would never happen. Based on what? We're trillions of dollars in debt. There are wars and rumors of wars going around. There's sickness everywhere you look. You know, the only thing left really is famine based on what I read in Revelation. If you want to go by that and it's not an impossibility, one bad growing season in the, in the American Midwest could put all of the world in hunger. And I'm not saying all this to scare everybody because that could happen at any time. We don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what the future holds. That I know the good shepherd. And I know how he can provide. And how I can trust in him. And he'll provide for me. Miraculously. Or very practically. You know a lot of people would say. The Lord works in mysterious ways. He does for the uninitiated. I believe that. They'll look around and say. Well now I can't hardly explain that. And the Christian sitting there saying. I can. I can certainly explain that. Because I know the good shepherd. He brings us to those green pastures. Leads us beside still waters. He takes care of us. Prepares us a table. In the presence of our enemies. Provides for us in a way in which we may not even ever conceive of. But we got to ask ourselves. Even when we have plenty. I think that's the most important time to ask. Even when you have plenty. Is the Lord my shepherd? Because everything we love and everything we depend on can go away. But this world can't take Jesus from us. This world cannot just simply kick in our front door and take Jesus out of our hearts. They may be able to come and get our Bibles and burn them. They may lock us in a deep, dark prison, but they can't take Jesus out of our hearts. They can't take His Word and that hope. I know because they've tried it in the past and it didn't work. The Apostle Paul from the very depths of Roman prisons, he was still able to put the gospel message out there when that a lot of people would look around and say, well, this is crummy and I don't know why that I should serve God because He's what got me into this mess. But you think about the way the Apostle Paul's attitude toward it was. He said it was amazing that the Lord counted him worthy to suffer for His name's sake. Would we really feel that way if we began to suffer for His name's sake? To stick with Him and say, Lord, though You slay me, yet I'll serve You. If You lead me to my death, I'll still follow You. 
Because one of the things that was probably the most striking, and I'd never really understood this until I, I heard another minister talking about it. I don't remember which one. But when you would bring a lamb to the sacrifice. And see, for years it was missed on me. I'm not Jewish and you know, wasn't really raised centering on a lot of the things in Leviticus. I've visited and revisited the book many times because a lot of times, as I've told you before, I missed a lot of stuff because it was boring to me. It's like sitting down and uh, reading the law or something. You know, it's just it's not as understandable. But whenever that you would have to make a sacrifice... You see, there was a public element of confession there. You know, if you've seen me heading up to the, the, the tent of meeting or the, the temple, leading a little ewe lamb, and it was the best one I had, you'd look around and say, well, I wonder what, wonder what Brother Jeremiah did. Here he is having to take it up to the temple. And you, you may look around, if you, if you think about it right, you may say, he's wanting to get right with the Lord. He's doing what is in accord with the law, leading it up through there. And then you would present it to the priests. And they would get it out the gate. You weren't even inside yet. They would get it out at the gate and they would begin to examine it. From one end to the other. You heard me say this many times. You know, they would, I, I never thought about this until I, I heard this. You know, they would raise its eyelids up and look at the whites of its eyes and inside of its mouth. And they would comb through every bit of the wool to check for one hair that was the wrong color. Check it over completely and perfectly. And then tell you whether or not it was an acceptable sacrifice. So going through all that, and that was not an insignificant amount of time. This was an all-day affair at least. And then when the time came and the sacrifice was acceptable, it was the one who committed the sin that had to kill it. And the thing that struck me the most was the lamb didn't fight. The lamb didn't try to run away. He trusted him. Stayed right there with him. Loved him. And then they would draw the knife right across his throat and shed that little ewe lamb's blood. And they're, they're some of the most gentle things you'll ever find in this world. Shed its blood. You know what that lamb did wrong? Nothing. That lamb hadn't done anything wrong. But the person that was drawing the knife across his throat, they were the ones in the wrong. And that little lamb, they'd say that when they would start to spill its blood... That it would look down and see its own blood and running out, and they'd just look up at him, nothing but love in their eyes as they were dying. Jesus is the Lamb of God and the Good Shepherd. He stood in your spot and my spot when we deserved for that to be our blood. He took our place. And a lot of people look at this altar coming to it. And I was the same way when I was lost. I felt like, man, that's a long walk. You imagine leading that little ewe lamb up the road there to the tent of meeting. Everybody seeing it. It was a public confession. Now, it wasn't about, oh, I did X, Y, or Z specifically. But there was an element of confession to it. And then calling upon the blood in order to save you from your sins. And that's what we did. That's what we have to do is to call upon the blood. 
Because when we stand before God, we're not going to be quoting Scripture uh, uh, about how great we are and how good we are, but rather we're going to say, I claim the blood of Jesus Christ for the remission of my sins. I cling to the cross. I trust the good shepherd. My prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High, the one who never knew sin, the acceptable sacrifice. It's His blood that I claim. Nothing else. We can't present receipts where we donated to UNICEF. That'll do us no good. We can't come and show show a note from your pastor of how regular your attendance was at the church house, how many hours you put in, or how much of the Bible that you've read and memorized. That in the end, all that matters is that we're one of His. That Jesus will point and say, Father, that one right there is one of mine. Not perfect, but one of mine. You know, there's not a perfect person that exists in this world. At times I've had to tell my students when I teach them about astronomy, there's a few of them that I'll look at and say, now I know this is going to upset you a little bit, but you're not the center of the universe. And the thing is... We're not perfect, but we will be because the Good Shepherd is going to perfect us. We're going to have a new body. One that's never going to get sick, never going to get old. I had somebody ask me not too long ago, said, when we're in heaven, what are we going to look like? Will we look like we did when we were young or when we died? Whatever, And I said, you know, honestly, I don't know. I know it'll be a new body. I would imagine that it'll, you know, be acceptable regardless of how that it looks. And they said, will we, will we know? Will we know we're loved ones? I said, well, yeah. And we'll know as we are known. Is the way the Scripture records it. And to my understanding, what that means is this perfect mind will think like God does. We'll see things from God's perspective. And even those of our loved ones that didn't make it to heaven, we'll see that through the same perspective as God. And we'll know in perfect judgment the same way as God does. Because a lot of people look around and say, how can I be happy in heaven when I know that a loved one is in torment? Well, this human perspective, I can't really say. But I can say that that perfect body, it'll be able to deal with it. We've got to trust the good shepherd. You know, he, he sorts them out. The sheep from the goats. When the end comes, that's all we're going to be able to count on is the good shepherd. And his good word here. Because you'll notice in verse 12 and 13, look what it says when we put our trust in the wrong place. Verse 12 it says, But he that is an hireling, and not the shepherd whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming. And leaveth the sheep and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. Verse 13, the hireling fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. But the shepherd, he'll give his life for them. The good shepherd gave his life for us. We've trusted in him, regardless of what comes. You know, the, the whole story of Job, and I think a lot of people miss the whole point there, is that Job got to a point where he trusted God no matter what. That didn't mean that he didn't grumble and complain because he did. But he never turned from God. 
He trusted Him completely, no matter what. He looked around and said, is it only good things that I'll receive from God? Think about it. If He's God, and He's so much higher than us, if He decides to put bad things on us, how do we know it's not ultimately going to end up good? We don't. But we need to trust Him. Just like we need to trust the Good Shepherd that everything that comes our way, whether good or bad, and we need to trust Him in. That if it's His will, then we need to go along with it. Let's everyone stand and get a song.